so we've been in this series called Start With Jesus. Would you say that with me? Say, Start With Jesus. The big idea is in everything I think, say, and do, I start with Jesus. So we've been going through the book of Luke, looking how Jesus would think, what Jesus would say, and what Jesus would do. And with that, we're going through the stories in the book of Luke and, and understanding them in their general context, of course. But then we're talking about how we bridge them over to our lives and how we can apply it. Every single week we get the opportunity to open God's word and to read it, but not just to understand it how it was back then, but to understand how it comes over thousands of years later, like into our lives and how we actually walk this thing out. You guys have heard me say that if you want to succeed in anything in life, it's actually very simple. Read the Bible and do what it says. And usually when I say that statement, I usually get that. I know we've heard that before, but if you think about it, if you would just read the Bible, especially the words of Jesus, well, everything, but especially the words of Jesus, you would understand that every answer you need in life, every question that you might have can be answered in the scriptures. And so we have this idea and this model that we are to live our lives like Jesus. And in order to do that, we've got to simply know about him. And so as we're reading this today, what I want to do is I want to read the story, then we're going to come back through it verse by verse, understand it in its general context, and then at the end of our message today, we'll talk about four ways that we can apply it to our lives and actually walk it out when we leave this place, all right? So the Bible says in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he had come near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Everyone say compassion. He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. That's something to say to somebody when you have compassion. Stop crying. Then he came and he touched the open. Does anybody just read that and go like, wow, Jesus, that was pretty insensitive. Don't weep. In other words, stop crying. But then he came, and he touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Verse 16, then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. Okay, so... In just seven short verses, the highlight of it is there is a dead young man, and Jesus raises him from the dead, and he has a mom, obviously, who is a widow. So what I want to do is I want to go back through this passage of Scripture, verse by verse. There's only a little bit of them today, so it won't be as long. And I want to highlight some things to us that I think will bring a depth to this passage of Scripture that we can understand and then eventually apply to our lives. Let's go to verse 11 again. We'll backtrack like a good thesis paper in an English class. I just gave you the beginning. Now let's go back and talk about it. It says, now it happened, underline the next line, the day after. Say with me, the day after. And he went into a city called Nain. Say Nain. You guys are good today. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. Would you say and a large crowd? I'm going to get you guys talking today, especially today. So three things that we point out in this one verse. First and foremost, the day after. Secondly, the city of Nain. And thirdly, a large crowd followed. Okay, first, let's talk about this thing very simply. It says the day after. Now, in understanding what we just came from, we see that the day after would be the day that Jesus healed 
the centurion's servant that we talked about last week. Remember the centurion who felt he was unworthy for Jesus to come to his home. He was a man who walked in utter humility. We talked about this in our groups throughout the week. He sent the elders, eventually sent his friends, and Jesus gets done by speaking a word, not even laying a hand on the guy, saying a word because of what the centurion said, and the centurion's servant was healed from a distance. In other words, Jesus spoke a word, and the healing took place. Now, fast-forwarding in this story today, Jesus, of course, does the same thing. He speaks a word, and a miracle takes place. So we have to understand the story before. Secondly, it says, when we came to the city of Nain, Luke's account is the only time this city is ever mentioned in the Bible. For all of us who like to nerd out on the Bible, you will never see the city of Nain in any other time than this passage of Scripture. Now, to understand that, it's about six miles southeast of Nazareth, and it's about a day's journey from Capernaum, about 12 miles. So think about this. Jesus heals the centurion's servant in Capernaum. He's now walked a day, 12 miles, a day walk. And as soon as he's starting to do so, um, he has another encounter with a group of people. Which gets us to the third point of Luke always saying this for some reason. It'd be fun to go back and see how many times. I believe it's five or six. But he refers to the large crowd. Luke is one of the only Gospels that consistently talks about this idea of Jesus' ministry being so known, might I even use the word popular, that large crowds are starting to follow after him. Now, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, so don't laugh at me if you're younger, but if you're in your 40s and even older, you can join with me, and I'm happy to join the club. Um, anybody remember that movie Forrest Gump? Forrest Gump, right? Jenny breaks his heart. Jenny takes off. So Forrest gets up one day and goes, you know what? I'm just going to go for a run. What does he do? He starts going for a run. So he's running through the city, and people see him going for a run. Then he runs back the other way. And then all of a sudden, people start going, who's this Forrest guy? And then the next thing you know, some people start running with Forrest. And then the next thing you know, more people start running with Forrest. And then the next thing you know, hundreds of people are running with Forrest. He's national news. He's going crazy. And all of a sudden, he gets done, and the person goes, well, why did you do that? And he coins the phrase, I don't know. I just felt like running, right? I'm not a smart man, Jenny, but I do know what love is, right? And so, <laughs> life is like a box of chocolates. <laughs> You're welcome, right? And so, his popularity just goes completely. <laughs> you guys know I'd be like quoting Forrest Gump in church today, huh? Uh, anyways, so his popularity, not a Forrest Gump of Jesus, by the way, is spreading in something just like that. Everyone is starting to make notice of this. Now, I, I would go on record to say that the impact of Jesus is far better than the impact of Forrest Gump, right? So large crowds are following after Jesus because miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching are starting to take place. And all of a sudden, this huge, massive crowd is following this one guy who eventually is the Savior of the world. Now keep this in mind. Get this illustration in mind. One man, lots of people following. We've got disciples and we've got people. Now, it's worth noting this understanding of, of this huge crowd, but also too of this crowd that's also at this funeral taking place. Now, I learned this a couple of weeks ago in Israel when we were there, but in, in, that, in that land, even to this day, you have cities, you have towns, and you have villages. Okay, now what's important about this story that we see is they use the word gate. 
And sometimes when we read through scriptures, we can kind of just read stuff, but miss some of these little things that really matter and bring a little bit more, might I say, uh, dramatics to the story. If you were a city in, in, in Israel, it's because you had fortified walls and a gate. You would be known as a city. If you were a village or a town, you had no fortified walls and you had no gate. In other words, if the enemy was to ever come, they could seize upon you very quickly if you were a town or a village, which was why a lot of towns and villages could be overtaken. However, in this story, in Nain, the only time it's mentioned in Scripture, it mentions the city Nain and that it has a gate. Why does this matter? Well, it matters if you are the gatekeeper. It matters if out on the distance you begin to look out and you see a large group of people coming towards your city. You would probably begin to go on a little bit of alert to kind of wonder what is really going on here because there is a, remember Luke said it, there is a large crowd coming towards our gate, our city, and as the gatekeeper, my job is to protect the city. So now this large crowd is starting to come. But we also know there's another large crowd that are getting ready to make their ways out. So we pick up the story in verse 12. And when he, being Jesus, came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and then it says this again, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Now get this in your mind, get a mental picture of it. Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd are walking one way. This other crowd is, is walking the other way. And Luke puts the meeting near the gate of the city, a place which would normally have its quota of its citizens for as the regular meeting place. That's where you would go. Dead bodies in this time, being ceremonially unclean, were not allowed to be buried within the cities. And the funeral was usually on the same day as the death. So this, this young man has died. The funeral is starting. Large crowd here, large crowd there. Got to bury him outside of the gates. I know with Jessica and with Jesse, we were actually in Jerusalem where you could see, I mean, just mounds of cemeteries all outside of the gates all the way around. That's where they would take them to go. Furthermore, when you look at the story, graveyards were located outside because of this idea of being ritually unclean. Now imagine in your mind that a large crowd is following Jesus, another large crowd is following this dead man's cast, and there are two crowds about to collide, but there's one lady in the story. Get this in your mind, and I want you to picture this today, and she's a widow, meaning she has no husband, and now she has no son. So with no husband or sons, the widow's means of provision were completely gone. In other words, she would be forced to rely on the charity of her neighbors and her struggle for her livelihood. It wasn't very common in that time for women to be able to live or to, to earn a living in, in, in this century. And to add to the hardship and the sense of loneliness, we know that, that her family line, her lineage, is completely gone. But here's what's fascinating to me. It says the large crowd from the city accompanied her. What this would show us is that this widow had a group of people who widely appreciated her and there was a depth of sympathy for her, but there's something else to be made known about this, which is very unique about this time. What you might not know about funerals in that day is they would actually hire what they would call professional mourners, meaning their job, even if they weren't related, was to walk behind these caskets and mourn for the deceased with loud crying and loud wailing. 
Furthermore, even if you were a widow, it was common practice that you would at least have to hire at least two flute players to play as the procession was taking place. There was a lot of customs in these times, okay? So if the Bible says a large crowd is following her, then we know there's a bunch of people. We know there's professional mourners. We know there's people playing music, playing flutes. So you have to imagine this scene is not really quiet and somber. It's a little dramatic. It's a little cinematic. And there's a lot going on to the story. And it helps us understand that because when we see how Jesus approaches this, this problem in this story, it really helps us understand a few things. So look with me at verse number 13. When the Lord saw her, now this is important. When he saw her, not when he had a conversation with her, not when he got her background, not when he pulled her off to the side and had a, a talk. No, no, no. When he saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Now, I joked about it earlier, but this is kind of like maybe the insensitive moment of Jesus, but it's really not. It's worth noting for the very first time in this narrative that Luke actually calls Jesus the Lord. Now, remember, we're reading the stories of Luke in eyewitness accounts. The reason Luke can make such a, a proclamation of Jesus being the Lord is because he is about to encounter Jesus raise the dead for the first time. So Luke's thoughts and opinion of Jesus, right, have been shifted as just this man or this Messiah or this prophet, but he's actually indeed the Lord himself. Now moved with compassion upon looking at the widow, Jesus took action on his own initiative, not by the, the, the request of anybody there, on his own initiative, and he says to her, do not weep. Notice, Jesus wasn't asked to do this. He moves, verse 14. I know I'm flying through this, but we're going to get to the four points. Then Jesus came, and this is where he starts to mess with the religious people again. Then he came, and he touched the open coffin. And those who carried him, they stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up, and he began to speak. And the Bible says, and he presented him, Jesus presented the young man to his mom. Think of the power and the significance of this moment, of these crowds colliding, of Jesus telling the lady, listen, don't weep, of Jesus walking past her, coming over to an open coffin, which would, which would have been against their custom of the day. It would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. He doesn't care. He goes over, doesn't touch the young man, touches the coffin, speaks to him. He raises from the dead, and he begins to talk. It's very easy to read stories in the Bible and go, oh, that's really cool. But guys, friends, put yourself there in that moment, if you will. Be there in that spot. What would you think? What would you say in that moment? Would you be in complete fear and by fear, I mean the awe of God, not afraid of God, but all of God to stand there and to go, I cannot believe my eyes are seeing what my eyes are seeing. You have to imagine for a moment, imagine if today somebody walked through those back doors with a dead person, brought them right here, and Dave, because he's a great man of God, came over in Jesus' name, touched that coffin, and the body came back to life. What would take place inside of here? I'll tell you what, some of you would be quiet, some of you would go, I mean, you'd be running circles in this place. Imagine it. See, 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 sometimes we read these stories in the Bible because we know of Jesus and we know of God. It's like, oh, okay, this is cool, but no, 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 no. Really feel this for a moment. This is crazy good. I can't just say crazy because Jesus ain't crazy. 
this is crazy good. Think of how Jesus is, Jesus is showing these disciples, and think about he's doing it in front of all these people. Can you imagine being one of those people for the rest of your life, always having the story to tell, right, at like Thanksgiving, right, like after the football games are done, of course, right? Hey, well, I remember that one time. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how the words of, or how the fame Jesus and the popularity of Jesus would have spread in that moment when he just raised a life back from the dead with simply his words? You feel it now? Putting ourselves in that moment, Jesus says, arise. And the young man, he literally raises up and he begins to speak. Verse 16. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet, this is interesting, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. Now that's interesting. A great prophet has come up. They refer to Jesus as, as prophet. Now, we know he's God in the flesh, but to them, he, he's just prophet in this moment. But then they glorified God. So those who saw this, they reacted in the presence of God. Fear, which was an awe, took a hold of them, and they glorified God, interesting enough, not Jesus. Now, they recognized that the hand of God and what had just happened was to give him praise for that, but they did salute Jesus calling him this prophet. So it gets me to this idea of understanding, wow, what a tremendous story. Now, how do we bridge that gap over to us today? Let me just say, let me just ask this real quick, okay, because this is a quiet group today, right? All right, pastor, I'm missing an hour. Don't judge me, not judging you. <laughs> Some of you are like, pastor, you're a little calm today. I know, I think that took it out of me over there. I don't know what's going on. Hear me, hear me. Do you have the story in your mind? Just seven quick verses. There's Jesus. There's a large crowd. There's a widow. There's her dead son. There's a large crowd. Jesus simply comes up, stop crying, walks over, touches a coffin. Young man raises up. Jesus says, hi, here's your mom. And then it says in verse 16, this fear comes upon them. It's a powerful story. What do we need to see from it? I'm so glad you asked. Point number one, if you can write this down. The first thing we need to notice about this story to bring over into our lives is number one is the compassion of Jesus. The compassion. There are a few things that we need to understand. We need to understand that life in the first century in the Middle East was difficult. We need to understand that men often died at a very young age. We need to understand that funerals were very, very common. This wasn't anything out of the normal. Furthermore, if we understand the parable of the unrighteous judge, which is later on in the book of Luke, it indicates that even in the ancient society that there were wicked men who targeted poor widows for their own personal gain. So when we see how Jesus ministers to this widow, we understand that the time upon which she lives, this is simply not easy. But Jesus' interference with the procession that was caused by his compassion for this weeping widow from the town of Nain got him to the place where she became the focal point, I believe, of the story. The reason I believe that is, yes, of course, the young man needs to be raised, but he sees her, speaks to her, raises, his up, raises him up, and then makes sure to grab him and say, please, come back to your mom. She's the focal point. And so we see that we should have this characteristic that Jesus has even in our lives today. 
In other words, if, if Jesus walks in compassion, this word comes to you and I, and we're to be like Jesus and we're to start with Jesus, then we are to be people of compassion. Noticing the needs of those around us who are hurting or in need. Let me ask, or better yet, ask yourself this question. When you see the vulnerable, the addicted, the hurting, the homeless, the down and out, what emotion and mindset comes to mind in your life? This is the personal reflection part right here, okay? This is the part that we walk out with. When you see someone who's just down on life, is your common response to say, well, that's on them? And it very might well be. Or is your, 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 your mindset to be like Jesus and to be a person of compassion and rather than rushing to judgment on how they probably got themselves there, but to be like Jesus and to see with your eyes and to move with compassion into a place where you begin to help someone. I, I learned this not too long ago, but it's two words. It's sympathy and then there's empathy. Do we all know the difference? Some of you teachers in here, you I got it. Sympathy is like, oh man, I... I feel sorry for this person. I, I have compassion for them. But empathy does something about it. Empathy moves beyond sympathy. I think, myself included, I have been so guilty of seeing the broken, hurting, the destitute, or whatever the case may be, and having emotions of feeling sorry for them, but never acting out of place or moving to a place where I say, God, how could I step in right here through your power and your glory and help this person out? Because that's what Jesus, could you imagine if Jesus would have walked up on this story and had sympathy and just, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And then they just kept going, right? I'm being a little illustrious here, go with me. And then they go and bury him. We'd have a completely different story today. But Jesus moves to action. Jesus moves to a place where he says it's one thing to have sympathy, it's another thing to have empathy and to move upon with compassion. Listen, I believe some of the greatest types of ministry you and I will ever have won't just be inside of a church building, but it will be out in your day-to-day -day lives where you keep your eyes open and your ears open to those around you and you have compassion for them. When you see somebody making a mistake, can I just encourage you, don't, don't go quick to, ah, oh, be quick to like, man. I wonder what's going on in their lives that would cause them to act like this. Because too many times we don't have sympathy for people and we just rush to judgment instead of being people of compassion. Number two, it's what I call the assurance that Jesus gives as Nate comes. It's the assurance that Jesus gives. Now, I know I've joked about this, but think about this. It would sound really ridiculous to tell a widow who has lost her husband and has now lost her only son to stop crying. That would be ridiculous. But it's exactly what Jesus did. Now, if you've been to funerals, and I've been to plenty of them, it's amazing how sometimes we just want to kind of come around those people and try to just give them a word to just try to help them out. And if you've ever been the recipient of the person sitting there and the one hurting, what do you say most of the time? I don't want to hear anything right now. I'm hurting. Most of the time. To think that we could fix a person's state with just our words, while they might be nice, sometimes they don't help. And I love the fact that if you look at this, Jesus isn't attempting to help this woman with his words. He just says to her, do not weep, and then he goes on. And there's this assurance that we see that I think is massively, massively important. 
the assurance that if Jesus is in the picture, everything's going to be okay. Like, if we have to take this story and bring it back to our own lives, we're, we're one or two people in the story. We're like the mother who's lost something, or the dead young man in the casket, meaning life has gotten the best of us. So whether there's something in our life that is that has just brought to a place where we're in utter despair, utter hurt, utter pain, like the young man, or we're like the mom on the outside looking in, the thing that both people needed in the story was this assurance that Jesus is actually indeed Jesus, and that Jesus can actually help. Furthermore, that Jesus is actually the solution. So so whether your life feels like there are things in your life that are dead and you feel like the young man, can I just say to you, Jesus is your solution. He can raise things back up. Notice, not only can he raise things back up, he can give you the ability to speak again. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Or if you're like that mom where you feel like things are just going all wrong and you've lost everything, the assurance is Jesus. He's always the assurance. Uh, it's, It's not just a... It's not just a phrase. Jesus is absolutely everything that you and I need. So why is it that if we're like the young man hurting or like the mom losing or lost something, that we're just like, man, how is this problem ever going to fix itself? When really the answer to the the solution is actually Jesus. I don't don't know about you, but um, can can I just get some help on this one? Raise your hand if you're like me. Have you just sometimes overcomplicated the problems in your life? Oh, thank the Lord. You know what I mean? Like, I got to this place a couple weeks ago where I was just kind of looking around at some things and just going, like, I have highly overcomplicated this. I, I've, okay, show of hands again. Let's have some fun. Welcome to church. How many of you have the propensity, I used a big word, but you're welcome, had the propensity to make problems bigger than they actually are. Okay, how does that normally happen? Most of the time, it goes back to what you think. Most of the time. It's not just a catchy phrase, but the battlefield of the mind is a real thing. Because if I can get this right, right here, then my problems aren't bigger. Might I even say my problems aren't bigger than my God. But the problem is, is when I don't stop the thoughts here, the thoughts eventually go to here. (laughs) And that's sometimes not good. And then the more I begin to speak things, the more I begin to believe things here. And then the next thing you know, my life is going in a direction of not just my heart or my words, but really my thoughts. Because it all starts here. The assurance that Jesus gives in anything that we're facing is that we need to understand, and this keeps coming up every single week, so I think the Lord's trying to tell us something, that in every single thing that we are facing, if Jesus is the answer... God's word has the answer, is the answer. We must know, believe, and do God's word. It must be, there's a lot of things that that I hold dear to life. I really do. I think we all do. There's a lot of things that we hold dear. But let it be that the Bible is the dearest thing that we hold in this life. Because everything that we face, the Bible has an answer for. Amen? Amen. Simple message this morning. Seven verses problem, Jesus solves it, that's assurance right there. 
Number three, it's Jesus' power and authority. Many of you, if you've read the book of 1 Kings, you'll notice in chapter 17, verses 17 through 24, Elijah actually raises a Shunammite woman's son from the dead, just like this story right here. Just how Jesus said, you, you talk about this, this parallel. But what's crazy about the difference, you want to know the difference? The difference is, is, is Elisha, he, he had to pray for this to happen. He, in other words, he didn't have the power and authority over, over death, but Jesus did. And Jesus literally goes over and he just raises this young man up. And I think the implication here is simply this, is that no one can make your life come alive more than Jesus. There's just nothing. He makes life work, amen? All right, then number four. Number four is you have his divinity and his presence. His divinity and his presence. Those are kind of some interesting words right there. Earlier on in the message, I had you repeat a word after me, um, the, word, the word prophet. You guys remember that? Here, here's why this story specifically is so powerful and so important to the understanding of the context of the book of Luke. I want you to track with me as I read this because I want to make sure that I get this right. The Bible provides so much of a detailed picture of the crowd's response to this miracle. And for our message, guys, it's crucial that we understand this. If you have systematically surveyed the Bible before, you may know that there is a time gap of 400 years between the period covered by the Old Testament and the period covered by the New Testament. You've heard me refer to this in Christmas times as the 400 years of silence. If you don't know what that is, pretty much God spoke to a prophet, Old Testament, and until Jesus comes on the scene, God went completely silent. If you remember in the Old Testament, the way that God spoke to his people towards the end of the New Test or Old Testament was he spoke to prophets. So people would know what God was saying because God would speak to a prophet. Well, now imagine God going silent for a year and every prophet going, God hasn't spoke. Imagine year two, year three, year 10, year one. 400 years God has gone completely silent. He's not speaking. Imagine what these people are facing, children of God. So he's gone silent. So what this is called is it's called the intertestimonial period because during this period, God revealed nothing new to his people. And as a result, the people lived in a deep spiritual darkness. Now, when they say a great, remember that word, prophet has appeared among us, this was no small statement. They've known nothing but silence for 400 years years and Jesus performs this miracle he raises the dead and the people realize that God is back and God is speaking and God is using and it's in the form of Jesus this is a big thing Isaiah 9-2 the people walking in darkness have seen a great light this is being prophesied on those living in the land of deep, of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Prophetically speaking, in the book of Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, that in a time of darkness, light has come back. Now, we know that large crowds are following Jesus after the first few miracles in the book of Luke. 
And as we're going to see as we travel through the next, we're going to see more miracles. We're going to see parables. We're going to see teachings of Jesus. We're going to see people coming after Jesus. But make no mistake about it, from this point on right here, the people are starting to get it. Because at first, some of them were not. Is he a prophet? They said the same thing about John. Who is this guy? He's raising the dead. He's speaking a word, and people are being healed. I want you guys to understand this because as we track in this series, it just keeps getting bigger and better. But at the same time, as Jesus' popularity and his crowd awareness begins to rise, at the same time, the attacks of the enemy are getting ready to come. And Jesus, I think, knowing, of course, that all of these people are standing around, understands that there's going to be a testimony that people have of a time where Jesus walked up and he healed someone. I've been saying this a lot, but the implication for point number four, if we bring it over into our lives, is this, is you may be going through a very difficult time in your life and maybe in some way doubting if God is really here. Maybe even doubting if God will ever come through. Maybe even doubting if God does even still heal. Maybe even doubting if God could even reconcile. Maybe even doubt. I mean, you can just fill in the blank. You might be here today or watching online or watching the replay, and there might be something in your life where you just feel like, listen, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. I take notes. I'm in a group. I try to do my best. But you've got a legitimate doubt. And let me just say this. Don't beat yourself up over it. We all do. All of us at some point, we doubt. But what you need to understand about this miracle and about the way that Jesus is operating right here in this time is that all you need to do is trust and believe that God is near and that he is for you and that he has got you. Some of you, I have great relationship with you. I love you dearly. And I know the things that you go through and the things that you are going through. And sometimes, man, you, you get that jolt of like, okay, okay, I talk with someone. Okay, okay, things are going to be good. But then that, that moment of, okay, God's word speaks. We know this. We'll learn about this in a couple of weeks is God's word is spoke. My heart is encouraged. I'm uplifted. Yes, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to just hold out. I'm going to walk patient. And all of a sudden, we have this moment where God ministers to our heart, and immediately the enemy wants to come, and he wants to take that hope out of your life and that joy that you experienced in the moment where you were hearing God's word. And you sometimes leave this place, and you walk out, and you go to your car, and then you get that one text message, that one phone call, that one boss, or whatever the case may be. The situation starts to change, and automatically the doubt begins to creep back in. That's when you have to know not only God's word, but you need to know how to pray. You need to know how to get somebody around you. You need somebody that you need to call. You need to shoot a text because you have to understand that God is a very, very trustable God. And if you keep him at the center and you keep him first and you just do your part. Everyone look at your neighbor and say, just do your part. Just do your part. What is your part? Trust and believe. Just trust and believe. It's going to work out. Amen? Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning?